along, you can turn to page six in your workbook. And I'll start by reading that passage um, at the top of page six. This is 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through saint slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul's commending their apostleship and talking about just the quality of how they're living out faith. And I want you to see he's talking about some of the paradox of being a believer. We're poor, yet we're really rich. We're unknown, yet we're really well-known. What we're going to focus on, there's only one part in there where he describes what's going on in their hearts. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I want us to think why the heart is important is I would say scripturally we believe that we're two parts, inner and outer. We don't believe like the mind, will, and emotions are separate. Our inner man or our heart or our soul, the scripture calls it different things, is what drives our outer man. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? And our inner man, it is comprised of our thinking and it's comprised of our choosing. But oftentimes, that's all we ever focus on in the church, and we don't think about our longings and our feelings. And actually, our inner man is driven by all four things, our thoughts, our choices, our longings, and our emotions. If I was going to give you an example, oftentimes I may work with someone, let's say, who's, I'll just give you an example. Let's say at 13, this fella's uh, dad died, and he's, he's the oldest son, and 45 minutes later or something, later in the day, his uncle comes in, and he's crying, and the uncle says, you're the man of the house now, you can't cry. And so that son makes a decision not to cry. And let's say a couple years later, he's at Boy Scout event or something, and he feels some sadness that his dad's not there. It's Pinewood Derby, and all the other dads are there but he doesn't cry, and he shuts down his emotion. And then I see him at 35 because he's addicted to alcohol, and all he knows is, I know it's wrong, and I keep choosing it. Let me just tell myself rationally to stop choosing it. But I know until he engages his grief, until he finds the comfort of God, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he's not going to have the ability to choose what's right. So that's why they have to, you know, do detoxification and go to meetings and do whatever they can to get help because they're not free to choose. And then over time, as they're redeemed and they become faithful and their whole inner man changes, then they have more freedom to choose and do what's right. 
So Paul, as he's commending these apostles, he talks about their heart and he says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now the first 10 years of my life as a believer, my favorite verse was, um, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I believe it's Romans 10, 9 and 10. And can I tell you what that verse meant? God, you held out on me the first 18 and 19 years of my life. Now you better make me happy. Okay? There's a lot of selfishness in that. The next 10 years, my favorite verse, this is a little strange, was from Ecclesiastes. And it was this verse, wherever the tree falls uh, north or south, there it lies. And it's actually a passage about the mystery um, and all of Ecclesiastes about how we can't understand God's ways. And really, those 10 years, I was trying to live by faith. I wanted to be in control and make sure my life was good. Then I was learning to live by faith. Well, the next 10 years, my favorite verse was, we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. All right? Christian emotional maturity is feeling two emotions over the same event. All right? So I'm a counselor in Birmingham, Alabama, and I've met with a lot of single women who get engaged and they're like, everybody's so excited and I'm a little afraid. I don't know who to talk to about feeling a little afraid. And I have to say, you, you should be a little afraid, even sorrowful. You know, we lose things. See, we lose something when we get married. Freedom, we gain something, another person, all right? Think about maybe moving. You're really connected to a bunch of people, right? And so you're sad to leave those people, but maybe you're going to a new job and going to make more money. See, there's sorrow and there's joy. How about having children? That's like an incredible gift and an incredible sacrifice, right? Almost everything in life has two sides, and when we're not secure in the gospel, when we're not mature like the apostles, we're either just sad or we're just angry. But we're not sorrowful and rejoicing. We can't do both emotions at the same time over the same event. That's Christian emotional maturity, where we can feel two different emotions over the same event. I have a little of that definition below there. What I want you to think, a strong heart, a mature heart, begins with sorrow, all right? Sorrow is a bridge to the strengthening of our heart. Let's think about Jesus first. I don't know if any of you remember the what would Jesus do bracelets were, right? I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit funny, but how come we weren't trying to be sad? It's a lot of what Jesus did, okay? Um, because I believe he knew love, and he knew holiness, and he knew beauty, and he was in a world where it was in short supply. And I believe the way he stayed buoyant and the way he stayed alive was he wept, and the Father comforted him. He stayed connected to the Father through his tears. I'm going to talk more about that. But it says there was nothing beautiful and majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the bitterest of grief. A gift in a fallen world is simply being able to sorrow and be refreshed. Sorry. Okay. All right, a refusal to grieve is fleshly anger. What did um, Satan say to Eve 
God's kind of holding out on you. If you take things into your own hand, you'll be better. I'm at the top of page 7. Okay? I want you to think about the Gospel of John. If you're familiar with that Gospel, John says, I, I'm going to tell you about Jesus' miracles so that you will believe in Him and in Him have life in His name. And if you were to read the Gospel of John as a narrative, as a story, you would see John organizes his narrative around seven miracles. Do you know what the last miracle is? Raising Lazarus from the dead. Now in that book, these words occur throughout the book, life and death, okay? Hardness of heart, softness of heart. Um, the enemies, the Pharisees who hated Jesus, and Jesus who loved the Father. Jesus even accuses them in the Gospel of John of just doing the deeds of your father, the devil. Okay? So this very last miracle where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, if you know it, he, he knows Lazarus is going to die, and he waits for him to die. And then he um, starts on the way towards where Lazarus is, and Mary and Martha at different times run out to him, and they say this, Jesus, if you would have come sooner, he wouldn't have died, which is kind of true, right? But Jesus doesn't condemn them. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and it's a great opportunity for him to say, oh, ye of little faith, I do great things. And it says he was actually angry. He was agitated in his heart. And I think his anger was, I hate death. I hate sin. I hate suffering. They are not our friends. They are our enemies. And then he weeps. And the word in the crowd is, see how much Jesus loved him. Now this is the last miracle. And what John does is, he shows, remember in John, I've come to give you life and give it you abundantly. The evil ones come to rob and kill and destroy. An image I like to use with my students is sin, suffering, and death does this. I did it earlier today. The gospel lifts our countenance. Jesus lived like this. He was naked and not ashamed. And he lived with a full heart. And what John is showing in his gospel is, compared to the Pharisees, who was life and death, here's the hero. I mean, uh, not Pharisees are just death. Here's the hero who is life. Guys, life in the gospel is not a big house. And it's not a big car. It's, I can weep when I need to weep. I can rejoice when I need to rejoice. I can love because my heart is free, all right? Sorrow is what strengthens our heart, all right? I have at the top of page seven, two verses. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. And I have another verse. For God can use sorrow in our lives to turn us away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow. But sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. As I thought about the session this morning, and I thought about how y'all are here to have fun, I thought, a talk on lamenting and sorrow. This is not very fun, okay? My daughter was counseling as a junior at Mississippi College, and uh, I called her on the phone, and I asked her what's up, and she said, well, Dad, I'm doing some counseling, and I said, well, what are you learning, sweetie? She said, well, I'm learning things about our family, and I'm just trying to stay positive. <laughs> so I said, well, sweetie, tell me what you're learning. And she said, in our family, 
everything is that so hard and that's so sad? And she said, I'm just so much more fun and free than y'all appreciate. <laughs> and here's what I said to her. Sweetheart, it's been good to watch you become a better version of yourself. Your friends have welcomed your joy in a way that your mom and dad haven't. And then we talked about how, and this will be good for you um, Presbyterians, I go to Presbyterian church, but Baptists are really naive, right? But they have a lot of fun, right? <laughs> and so she talked about how she loved having fun, but there was no depth at school, and she loved being at home because it was death, but it wasn't any fun. Okay? So, I'm sorry that we're talking about lamenting and sorrowing, okay? I hope it's helpful. But I want you to see those two verses. Sorrow has a refining influence on us, and godly sorrow will never regret that kind of sorrow because it helps us to turn away from sin and seek salvation. You know what we're usually doing with this mystery of life, this fact that we're in a fallen world where there's sin, suffering, and death? We're either trying to busily be in control, active control, or we're turning away in passive control and creating a dream world. We're not living like this, with open hearts saying, Lord, I will suffer as much as you ask me. If, if I ask you to pray this prayer, Lord, I'm willing to suffer as much as you ask me to. As much as you want me to. I'm willing to grieve as long as you ask me. How many of you think your life's going to get harder? Aren't you guys Presbyterian? <laughs> it's not God, not sovereign. What you would be doing is changing your heart in a way where you would be able to welcome whatever difficulty came your way. What I want you to think is this turning in sorrow, this refining in sorrow, is we're turning from self-reliance, where we're trying to control things, or we're running away, to fear God instead. What does it say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A lot of what I teach, I learned, I studied under Larry Crabb and Dan Allender out in Colorado. And I got onto campus um, as a really happy Arminian who was denying any difficulty in life. And they started teaching me some of the things I'm talking to you about. And I was like, what's wrong with you people? You have no joy. You're not happy in Jesus, right? And then slowly, because back then, like, the fact that Jesus sorrowed or got angry, and I thought I had dealt with anger, like, I wasn't convicted that I thought I was more spiritual than Jesus, right? I saw he had emotions. I didn't. What was, I didn't think what was wrong with me. I didn't think what was wrong with Jesus. I was just, you know, kind of deceived. But as I continued to grow, and soften. A year and a half after I graduated that program, I went and saw a movie, and movies have a way of bringing things alive. And early in this movie, it's called Man Without a Face, it painted a picture of a boy who felt like an alien in his family and an alien in the world. And I connected with it, and I began to weep. And I wept the whole movie, and as we were walking out, I looked at my wife and I said, I have been sad my whole life and pretended I'm not. I just can't do it anymore. And that began a journey. All right? In the book, I tell a story, and this is not to overwhelm anyone. My youngest brother took his life about 18 years after that story I just told you. And for 18 years, I began to practice in sorrow. There were times I was working at a residential treatment center with adolescents. I think I talked about it this morning, who had been abused. And I encountered a lot of sad stuff. And sometimes I would say to my wife, I'm not, I'm not taking any of this sadness in, 
I'm, I'm naturally like push it away just in my inner person. And I was like, I need to watch a sad movie just to help me feel some of the sadness that I'm experiencing, okay? So for 18 years, I practiced. My brother took his life. And it was sad beyond imagination. Four months after, my good friend, I've been having lunch with every other week for 27 years. Three months after my brother died by suicide, he asked me, how are you doing? And I said, here's my one consolation. I know how to grieve. And this has not snowed me under. I've been able to counsel and care about people because I practice. I build muscles where now I can naturally grieve. And I'm weeping with regularity, but it's not sinking me under. All right? Way back, 18 years before that, just feeling sadness, I got afraid. Like, if I start feeling this, it's going to get uncontrollable. And I won't know what to do. I had to practice that. One of the big things I'm trying to do this weekend, and tomorrow I won't talk about any difficult emotions, okay? Is we don't get good at these things as believers because we don't practice, all right? When it says in Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger, that's an emotion that we have problems with as believers. Most of us think that means we're not supposed to be angry, but we're supposed to rush through our anger, right? When it says don't let the sun go down on your anger, you know what it actually means? Ephesians 1 through 3 is this wonderful theology. Ephesians 4 says, if you believe this stuff, therefore live worthy as a bondservant. And then go down to about Ephesians 4.14, and it says, stop being indifferent to what's right and wrong. Or it says, stop telling lies to each other, or speak truth to one another in love. Three different versions of the same verse. It's saying, start believing that things are true. Stop pretending. Stop being indifferent. Stop being hard-hearted. And if you do that, you know what you're going to feel is some anger. So then it says, be angry and don't sin. And then it says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. But that's a paraphrase of Psalm 4.4. Do you know what Psalm 4.4 says? Think about your anger overnight. On your bed, remain silent. Guys, the admonition to not let the sun go down in your anger is an admonition to process your anger, to bring it to the Lord, to pray about it. Because then it says, it gives an angry foothold to the devil. It's either Ed Welch or David Pallison says, if you don't process your anger, the devil will be your counselor in it. Okay? So I'm not trying to make your life more difficult. I want us to think about practicing better with these emotions we tend to run away with. Because as those emotions are, are redeemed, guys, jealousy is not sinful, anger is not sinful, sorrow is not sinful. They can all be sinful. But if we don't learn how to practice and pray about these things, then our inner man won't be filled with the Spirit in a way that our outer man will be worshiping the Lord in fullness. Okay? All right. So let's go back to the uh, middle of, the top of page 7. All right? I talk about two types of grief. In 2 Corinthians 7, it talks about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Here's what I want to say. Worldly sorrow is more like pity, like how come this is so bad or this is so hard? And it's kind of a turning away from where godly sorrow, like lamenting, is, Lord, this is just so painful. Lord, where are you? It's similar to lamenting, but it's a turning toward the Lord in sorrow, not a turning away from the Lord. Okay? So I say there in the middle, page 5, sorrow turns us from the idolatry of self 
towards trusting someone bigger and redeems our whole inner person. As we grow a willingness to sorrow, our heart comes alive with passion in general. Guys, if, if, if you have experienced something painful, as I said earlier today, you can choose one emotion over another. So oftentimes, we might choose like guilt or anger when it should be sorrow, because that gets us working and doing something. Sorrow is more vulnerable. And sorrow, bless those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, invites the Lord to move towards us. That's what refines us. And so then our whole inner man comes alive. Jesus sorrowed a lot, but I want to read this um, quote in the, towards the bottom of page 7. This fellow ex, um, recorded all the emotions of Jesus in the Gospels. Everyone that's mentioned the Gospel, and then he comments about it. He says this, Jesus felt compassion, he was angry, indignant, and consumed with zeal. He was troubled, greatly distressed, very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved and grieved. He sighed, he wept, and sobbed. He groaned, he was in agony, he was surprised and amazed. He rejoiced very greatly and was full of joy. He greatly desired and he loved. Now, if I gave that emotional description of anyone here, we would think that person's emotionally unstable. Right? Who here wants to say that Jesus is emotionally unstable? Jesus was alive. And he was alive in his heart. You know why? Because his father was nourishing him. And Jesus, in a fallen world, stayed connected to him through his sorrow. Okay? So I want to talk about, just to help you think about sorrow and how to do it, I want to talk about three types of grief. I know, I'm going to talk about what is grief and then three types. So what is grief? Grieving or sorrowing is experiencing and expressing the pain of events we are not made for that come as a result of living in a fallen world. I'll give you one of my favorite examples. I played high school football at a school that had a really strong tradition in football, very good. My senior year in high school, I was the captain of that team, and for the first time in 18 years, we lost to our crosstown rival. As I was heading to the locker room after that game, I heard someone say, I waited my whole life for this, okay? Well, Monday, we played on Saturday, no Friday Night Lights at our stadium in New Jersey. But on Monday, I went into my European history class, and this dude, Trump War was his last name, but we called him Trump way before Donald Trump, right? He had double black sweatbands on his left and right hand. And I was like, Trump, what's up with the sweatbands? And he said, the football team died on Saturday, I'm grieving, okay? He, he showed his grief with his sweatbands, okay? Grieving is simply experiencing and expressing. He experienced it, and he expressed it, okay? I have a quote at the bottom of page 7. With the exception of overt tragedies such as death or natural disaster, today's fast-paced world allows little time for reflection, actual grieving, or integration of loss. Encouraged to get on with the busyness of life, Many of us rush ahead of the natural grieving process in hopes of avoiding inevitable pain and the inconvenience it is likely to bring. Taking time to grieve would at best risk our being viewed as weak or melodramatic or at worst jeopardize our reputation should we be judged as irresponsible in the education, execution of our daily responsibilities. 
As a result, isolation, depression, loneliness become constant traveling companions for many of us. So experiencing grief is simply welcoming emotional pain. I have a verse there from Hebrews. Don't forget about those in prison. <laughs> Suffer with them as though you were there yourself. Share the sorrow of those being mistreated as though you feel their pain in your own bodies. How many of you have ever gotten that advice from another believer? I encourage you to feel the pain of your friend who lost their spouse. You don't get that advice. To welcome emotional pain. When I'm teaching this in class, I'll say to my recent students, they may have, I'm sure, um, now I'm forgetting, um, Dr. Ross, I'm sure it was there, okay, when you were there. Dr. Ross is super hard, teaches Hebrew. And then Dr. Park teaches New Testament, um, Greek. And they're both really hard. So if the student has those two professors in the same semester, they, and Beeson's not an easy degree. I couldn't have done it. Um, they have a really hard semester. So I say, if one of your friends who's a student has Dr. Ross and Dr. Park in the same semester, and they say, I have Dr. Park and um, Dr. Ross this semester, that's really hard. What I want you to do is look at them and say, that's really hard. Don't start telling them how you endured it and how you did better with it. It's similar to what I was saying earlier about, earlier today, about husbands welcoming what your wife is feeling. Oftentimes we push it away. We say things to fix it or to make others feel better. We simply don't welcome it. And we don't express it. A way to express grief, like if someone lost their spouse, okay, and they're going out for the day, they might not have makeup on. And they might take like a hat shower, you know, put on a hat and wear. And if you saw them, it looked like they were sad. And they're demonstrating that life is just hard. Oftentimes when we're grieving, like, we might not sleep well, we might not eat well. It impacts us. Something happens in our bodies. And we have to pay better attention to that and how to deal with that, okay? So I simply want you to think it's welcoming emotional pain, trying to feel it, and expressing it. I believe um, that Jewish people have the least amount of alcoholism out of any ethnicity. Do you know why? Because they have rituals of grief built into their ways they worship, okay? Oftentimes in America, we don't have rituals where we can express it. We're not like my classmate who wore the black sweatpants, okay? We don't have ways to express it. It helps us to be able to express it. So I want to talk about three different types of grief, okay? This is towards the bottom of page eight. The first is anguish. This is what Jesus felt before he raised Lazarus from the dead. I, see, I say this. We feel anguish when we encounter evil because we are in touch with our desire to push against it. It is a reminder that sin, suffering, and death are not our friends. We must accept them as realities in this world, and sorrowing helps us to do that. But as we hold on to anger, it energizes us to keep moving forward toward justice and to participate in building the coming kingdom. Often a person only experiences either anger or sorrow. If we feel only anger at injustice, we become bitter and resentful. And if we only feel sorrow, we become weak and passive. Anguish is a mixture of sorrow and anger that fosters strength to keep moving against injustice in the world. This may seem like a silly example, but as a counselor, 
oftentimes, what I want to do is simply provide a better taste of relationship to the person sitting across from me than they experience outside the counseling office. And it's actually not that hard. You know, when you're not married to someone or related to someone or you're not their good friend, it's actually easier to relate to them, okay? But oftentimes, um, actually, let me preface it this way. If I said the verse, speak truth to one another in love, most of us would think that means tell our neighbor hard things. But that means all your neighbor does is sin or bad, okay? How many of you think telling your neighbor the truth is affirming them and complimenting them? Okay? Guys, how well you're doing with grace can be evidenced in how well you receive a compliment. Okay? So the next time you receive a compliment, what I want you to do is say, thank you. Can you give me some other examples? Okay? <laughs> I'm not really being funny. Okay? We're so uncomfortable with being enjoyed. So I have people sitting across from me, and I compliment them, and they push me away. Oh, that's no big deal. Now in that moment, I feel a little bit of anger, which simply gives me the strength, and I'm like, I will compliment you the next 30 minutes until you say thank you. <laughs> so I don't, I just, I'll re-say it, and they'll be like, oh, but it's not a big deal. And, you know, by the fifth or sixth time we go through it, they catch on. And they lean into maybe saying, thank you. Do you realize that that's anger that's energizing me in that moment? Because what I'm feeling is, you have been beat down and you, you don't know how to feel enjoyed. You don't even know how to hear that you're good and beautiful. Guys, as believers, and this is the paradox of life. Paul said, I'm the chief among all sinners. Okay? If you read Corinthians, the way he talks to the Corinthian churches, I'm a called and gifted apostle. I'm not about to apologize for it. You better sit up and listen to me. All right? The gospel, this is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The gospel is pushing us to extremes. When we live in grace, we can live in this gray world alive with life, okay? So, I want you to think anguish is anger and sorrow mixed together. And that is sorrow over injustice. We live in a world where so much wrong happens. And we need to be people who can stand up in that and not take anger out at people, but have anger for people and lead them to the beauty of the gospel. The next type of anger is contrition. In contrition, we recognize we cooperate with evil and make choices that conspire against God's goodness. This type of grief tells the truth about our sin against God and others. We often buy into the evil one's deception or his persecution, and as a result, follow his ways that are opposed to God. Contrition, this is the most familiar form of sorrow for believers. Now, if you're talking to someone, okay, and they've actually recognized that they've done some sin, and maybe they soften a little bit. I know this is a counseling technique, right? But you can say, what's your emotion there? And what if they were to say, well, I'm sad I did so-and-so. Would you quickly try to cover that over, or would you say, that's really a good thing to grieve? In James, it starts off, this is James 4, it starts off saying, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. And then it talks about how we're all murderers and adulterers. We all sin. We have sin in us. And then it says the problem is you're friends with the world. 
And, and then it says, God jealously desires this Holy Spirit in you. He wants your flesh to be mortified. He wants Christ in you to grow. He wants you to walk fully and freely in the Spirit. So then it says this, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into gloom. Bow down before the Lord. Because we are believers who believe in holiness and it is good and right to sorrow our sin. It is not right to shame yourself for sin or to beat yourself up for sin or to talk about how bad you are because you sin. What you want to learn to do is sorrow your sin. Because as you sorrow, it's a prayer that's saying, Jesus, energize me, strengthen me so I can do what I want to do. And I stop doing what I don't want to do. Pressuring yourselves and beating yourselves up will never produce the kind of righteousness you want. But sorrowing and admitting that you do things that you don't want to do and the things you ought to do you don't do, that will change your heart. And that will give you strength. That's contrition. Sorrowing over our sin. The last kind of sorrow is this, yearning. This grief tells the truth about how God brings good out of bad. It acknowledges His sovereignty and coming kingdom. It is a wistful, hopeful type of grief laced with sorrow. It is letting the hope of redemption lift us up. Here's one of my favorite examples. Well, this daughter's four or five, and we're at the dinner table, and she spills her milk, and she laughs and says, I made an accident. You know what her dad did? He started weeping. See, she was about four years old, and I was still pretty afraid that I wasn't going to have the kind of family I wanted, because see, it was all dependent on me, and I didn't look too good as a dad, so there was no reason to have hope. I didn't believe back then that you don't actually have to be that good of a dad to have good kids, because God raises our kids anyway, even if we think we're doing it, okay? Anyway, I didn't know that, right? So I'm really afraid, and my daughter starts weeping. I mean, I start weeping. And during that season in life, I was awakening to, I was actually in that family I wanted to be in, and I didn't deserve it, right? But I was. Because the gospel was around us, and it was holding us, and it was growing us, and it was leading us to a place that I couldn't see or deserve or own my, and my own strength. And so I was regularly having tears, and I had to teach my daughter, sweetie, these are happy tears. She was getting a complexion, but she made her dad cry too much. Okay. This is a yearning. It's like I'm letting go all this striving, all this fear. I'm actually in that family I wanted to be in. And my tears were just saying, Lord, thank you. I never thought I was going to be here. So many of our tears can be good and beautiful and holy tears that say, the kingdom's coming. And one day I'm going to be there in fullness. Okay? That's a yearning type of sorrow. All right? So, now we're going to spend the last amount of time we have talking about joy. Now, if you have followed me, I hope, not because I like to challenge people, okay? But I hope thinking about lamenting and thinking about sorrowing, you feel your heart, your insides being pushed on. And you're feeling like that would take some faith. That would take some exercise. I believe we don't have deep joy in the church because joy comes on the other side of sorrow, real joy. See, sorrowing because it strengthens our heart and it enlarges our heart, it actually gives us the freedom to really feel joy. Because real joy is a gift. You don't earn anything good in your life, okay? 
when I was weeping as my family was showing me that it was something I didn't deserve. See, that was a gift. I didn't earn that and deserve that, but I was actually able to receive that because my heart had softened because I didn't think everything was on my shoulders. It was all dependent on me. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself. If we don't learn how to sorrow, we won't experience real joy. I have a quote there from Eugene Peterson. He says this, one of the most interesting and remarkable things Christian learns is that laughter does not exclude weeping. Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the happiness of the redeemed. A common but futile strategy for achieving joy is trying to eliminate things that hurt. Get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. Get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks. Get rid of disappointment by depersonalizing your relationships. And then try to lighten the boredom of such a life by buying joy in the form of vacations and entertainment. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. I have three verses there that all talk about how weeping precedes joy. Right? So again, let me just give you a simple example. You know, I told you by now, I grew up in the North. I went to college in Long Island. And I think my junior year in college, my sister was out in Western Pennsylvania, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And I drove out one weekend to visit her. And it was the fall. And if you've ever driven across Pennsylvania on I-80 in the rolling hills in the fall, it's incredible, beautiful fall colors, okay? But I was a kind of arrogant 20-year-old college student, so I drove out and back across Pennsylvania. And when I got back into Long Island, this thought occurred to me. What's the big deal with the fall colors? Like, why did people drive out to Lancaster, PA, and get a now on Airbnb just to see the fall colors? I was like, I don't get it. 30 years later, I was driving down I-65 in Alabama. And I love Alabama, it's home, but the fall colors here don't compare to Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I looked out the window, and tears came to my eyes, and I said, Lord, thank you. Because he can clearly be seen through what has been made. And the heavens declare his glory. I felt joy simply by the beauty of creation. My heart had softened to the place because I had practiced its sorrow, and I simply felt joy. As my girls were growing up, there would be times we would just be driving in the car and tears would come to my eyes and I would just be like, you are so beautiful. You're such a gift. That was because of the softness in my heart. All right? What I believe we have to practice at, if we learn to lament and sorrow the way I'm talking about, is forgetful joy. This is the bottom of page nine. Forgetful joy is an experience of delight that comes from partaking in God's creation. This helps us to disregard our present reality as aliens and foreigners living in a strange land ruled by the accuser of the brethren. Forgetful joy evolves from the simple pleasures God provides to help us push away the weight of this fallen world. Forgetful joy can happen to us each day. It can be a vacation, a good night's sleep, a cup of coffee in the morning, a relaxing lunch, a good book, or a humorous exchange with a friend. Forgetful joy is attached to the sensuous pleasures God gives us each day. The prophet Nehemiah said to his people, 
go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The simple gifts of this life connect us with the Lord's kindness and help us forget the weight of this world. Naming this type of joy means we accept that it comes from the Lord's hand and we turn away from our tendency to make it an idol. Every good thing comes to us from, as a gift from God, and the more we grow in God's consciousness, the more we name every gift as a kindness from God that leads us into joy. What I'm really saying is, as we grow more God consciousness, as our flesh is diminished, we're walking with God, and the spirit within us grows little by little, we soften and we recognize that this is a sad world and we need gifts to endure. All right? This is years ago, and uh, I was walking in a council someone, and they were already in the waiting room waiting for me. And they were a young person, and I was like, listen, I think someday you're going to get this. And I was like, but i got to have my cup of coffee. And I always say, there's three reasons I know God's mercies are new every morning. It's in the Bible, my cup of coffee, the warmth, the smell, like that kindness is the thing that reminds me I'm made for heaven, okay? And then my wife is still there after all I put her through. That's a good reminder that God's mercies are new every morning, okay? But I want you to understand something a little bit more, a little bit more deeply about um, forgetful joy. I have a passage there from Psalm 104. You cause grass to grow for the cattle. You, you cause grass to grow for the cattle. You cause plants to grow for the people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil that's lotion for their skin, and bread to give them strength. Now, right, most Presbyterians will have a glass of wine. Is that right? I'm not. That doesn't mean you have to. Okay, sorry. But, okay, because. Yo, one time, back to the Baptist, I was teaching in a Baptist church, and I think I was going to talk about this. And midway through, I was like, oh my gosh, they're Baptists. And I was like, are you the kind of Baptist that drink and are honest about it? Or are you the kind of Baptist that lie and no one knows that you drink? I actually said that. Okay? Anyway. So this is a story I use often to illustrate this. For those of you who maybe have not had kids, it might be hard to imagine. But for those of you who have, it will not be hard to imagine. I want you to imagine you've got three young kids at home. You remember that stage of birthing and not sleeping and, you know, going through that, right? Um, it's a really hard stage, right? I was, I was beginning to think about how hard it was, right? So, now you're in a small group, you're in a good church, and you're in a small group with other couples, right? And so you decide, we're going to get babysitters, and we're going to forget that we have kids and we're going to go out for dinner, right? And you have a couple glasses of wine that just lighten the mood and they help with some forgetfulness. And you start laughing and having fun. And here's what you remember. I'm made for the kingdom. I'm made for laughter and for joy. And you actually have forgotten that you have children at home. And it's a beautiful, fun moment. Guys, we're supposed to celebrate and enjoy like that because that's, that's forgetful joy, okay? And then, the night ends, and on the way to the car, you're like, oh. <laughs> Children are home. Okay? 
So I want to tie that example to these two quotes here. Okay? First quote. To make them glad implies a degree of joy brought through the chemical effects of the wine. There are a number of degrees of intoxication, and the word in this passage implies a slight buzz, a small but pleasant change of mood due to the wine. The idea that God recognizes the sorrow and desperation of living in a fallen world and provides for an occasional oasis break in our desert journey is not a commonly held Christian perspective. If we're skipping over sorrow and we're just happy through all our own effort, then we actually don't soften and recognize how we need these gifts from God to sustain us and endure in a fallen world. Okay? And there are so many different ways we can do that. Years ago, I tried to start playing golf for some forgetful joy, right? It's the type of joy that helps us forget we're in a fallen world. Anybody who plays golf for that is crazy, okay? Because <laughs> if you want to be reminded that this is a fallen world, play golf, okay? So I used to joke, and I was like, I'm going to ditch these clubs, and I'm going to get a kayak. Well, I tried for about five or six years, and now I have a kayak, okay? Because there's no futility in kayaking, boy. You're just, and I just do touring kayaking, right? That's one of my real forgetful joys. I get outside, I do a four-hour flight down the river, and... It's secluded and beautiful, okay? So forgetful joy is a simple daily things that bring us joy, but we have to name them as gift from God. And if we're trying, and this next quote will show us, to use that to flee, if we're trying in our own strength to make ourselves happy, then we get into trouble with joy. Let me read this next quote. Pleasure is meant to prompt us to praise God. Whenever we use the pleasure to flee, we usually indulge to the point of oblivion. We overdo the pleasure to accomplish the desired end, escape. But pleasure that is full of place as a boundary, an acknowledged limit that allows the heart to taste pleasure while also the wedding, wedding the appetite for more. So, and remember, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're growing in the Spirit, all these things are coming out, like love and joy, peace, and self-control. Okay? No one has to tell me not to have more than a couple drinks. I naturally have self-control because of the Holy Spirit in me. Now, it was really good that I was afraid of drinking for a long time because I think my heart was so disordered, I would have been using alcohol to run and flee and gotten drunk. So back to that example. Because those young couples out for an evening have a couple of glasses of wine and none of them gets drunk, when the night's over, they feel sadness that the kids are at home, right? And here's what, they, here's what they have to remember. That was a taste of heaven. But I'm not there yet. I have to wait. And God will have to sustain me. But I trust Him. That's why I don't have to use pleasure to flee. It has a boundary. A desire, an end that keeps us from escaping and running away so that we still have to hold on to some sadness that says, Lord, hold me until that final day. I want us to become people who do forgetful joy. Joy that helps us forget we're in a fallen world that also has this boundary, this movement towards self-control, which means for most of us, eh, all of us, there's some boundaries we're violating, okay? The largest idol in the family I grew up in was food. And I'm not trying to be weird by saying this, but I, I attacked my food for years 
or even raped it. Again, I'm not trying to, okay? But like, it was an idol, and I could, like, I couldn't stop. And you know how many times I told myself, you know, like, let's say it's heavy hors d'oeuvres at a wedding reception, and I'm like, don't go crazy. Five minutes in, you know what I was doing, right? At 59, I'm about 18 pounds lighter than I was most of my adult life, because this happened. Slowly, self-control built in me as the Holy Spirit worked. Guys, walking in the Spirit, this is where I'm not Arminian anymore, right? I have a uh, Reformed view of sanctification. It's, we don't go from the flesh to the Spirit in one day. It's a slow, gradual climb. Now I have a boundary of self-control that I, I can't even violate. Like, I'll, I'll start eating and, and want to go to more, and I'll remember how painful it felt when I ate too much the night before, okay? Both in what it did to my body and shame, okay? Now, for those of you that struggle with eating, that's a hard thing because sometimes everybody sees that and a lot of the other things we hide. But there's, there's idolatry in all of us. And all of us are practicing to come into self-control in one way or another. Okay? So I want to give you some freedom to keep searching for that limit, that boundary. Alright? Again, a reformed view of sanctification. Only grace, only scripture, only faith. Right? Scripture gives us the way to point. I hope the way I've talked tonight about sorrow and joy gives you a direction on how to aim. Faith says you're not in control. You have to walk in mystery. And you know what grace says? You ain't ever going to get it right. But you can keep practicing. And if you keep walking, and you keep aiming, and you keep practicing, what's going to happen? You're going to experience growth and change. Right? So here's my concluding thought for tonight. I hope, thinking about your insides, I do hope you were pushed a little bit. I, the gospel should not only get you rationally. I hope when I teach, it gets you in here. Right? Because that's where growth happens. And I hope you have felt pushed to move towards lamenting and sorrowing. And then I pray that there's some hope that a deeper joy will find me as I practice at those things. Okay? Let me pray. Lord, we open our hearts to you. And Lord, we try to open them wide. And we ask you, you are a master at speaking to the places in our heart. You want cleanliness in the innermost parts. And Lord, we can't do that in our own strength. And we've tried too often and too much. But Lord, it's your spirit and it's your work. Lord, if we Follow the deeds of the flesh, it's death. But if by the power of your spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will find life. So Lord, I pray for these men and women that in whatever way you have uh, spoken to their hearts, that they would look to your spirit to put to death the deeds of their flesh. And that by your grace they would find life, Lord that they could laugh and lament and sorrow and even have good anger that accomplishes justice, Lord, that their insides would be more filled with you and that would be demonstrated, Lord, in how they live their life. We thank you for that. Do that in us and for us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.